I'm Chris Motes, and this is Faith in Politics. On this broadcast, we range from the soul to the state as we cultivate those virtues and explore those principles that help us live well as faithful Catholics in this great land. Hey, well, welcome back for another episode, folks. We are broadcasting from the great state of South Dakota, where under God, the people rule. It is back to school time. I want to invite you to go back to school with the South Dakota Catholic Conference. We are launching a statewide book club reading group. We're going to be meeting via Zoom on Wednesday nights at 8.15 Central, 7.15 Mountain Time, beginning on September 8th. It's Wednesday next week. If you want in or if you want more details, you can reach out via the website, sdcatholicconference.org. Click Contact Us, and I'll send you all the information you need. We're going to be opening with uh, a great book uh, by... Joseph Pieper. It's called Joseph Pieper, an anthology. Joseph Pieper was a great uh, German uh, Thomist who kind of explained some of the theology of, uh, excuse me, philosophy of Thomas Aquinas and and built on Aristotle, as we've discussed in this program in the past. Spending six weeks with this Joseph Pieper anthology, then going through Veritatis Splendor, um, a, a book I'm really excited about, Prayer as a Political Problem by the French Jesuit Jean Cardinal Danilou. Then uh, a collection of speeches speeches by Alexander Solzhenitsyn uh, in a book titled Warning to the West, and then ending with Social Justice Isn't What You Think It Is uh, in the Christmas Season. That's a book by Michael Novak. So if you, if you want more information uh, or just to learn a little more, feel free to reach out via the website. Okay, now we're going back to school right now, again, with regular guest, Professor John Schaff, uh, who is well-known to listeners of this program, professor of political science at Northern State University author of a number of books, and writer of fine articles that appear at uh, your your local, your, your favorite, um, some of your favorite websites out there. Professor Schaff, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Chris. Can't wait. So our topic today, I think, um, one that you suggested, and I think is timely, um, just as Afghanistan is in people's consciousness, and, and we're just sort of starting to think about our own uh, role in the world as Americans. But the topic for us today is just war theory. Um, this, this this theory developed, uh, I think, the, the the first, and you'll, you'll tell us more, going all the way back to St. Augustine. We've, we've spent a lot of time yep. talking about him, too, with City of God. Yep. But um, really, really interesting topic for me, kind of near to my own heart, too, as a, as a veteran, uh, former Marine. But uh, let's let's dive right in. Where do we start with just war theory? Well, I think you're right, Chris, that you could you could start from uh, from Augustine, so fifth century A.D., of course, and then you know, over the course of, of medieval and early modern times, uh, the theory gets fleshed out by many thinkers. There's actually a, a, a very healthy, a relatively contemporary um, uh, school or uh, scholars of just war theory. Um, such as the, the, the philosopher Michael Walzer has a very famous book on called Just and Unjust Wars. And he's not arguing from the Catholic tradition, uh, but still, I think it's, it's, it's a very good book on the subject if, if listeners were looking for kind of a, a, a brief uh, and very, very readable uh, primer on, on just war theory. It's a place to go other than, uh, you know, you could also seek out um, uh, more, more Catholic sources. But I think when we, when we start talking about just war theory, there, there are two concepts that we have to start with. And one is, um, when is it just to go to war? And so we call that, that is, that is juice ad bellum, right? When is it just to go to war? And then there's juice in bello, which is justice in war, of war. So once a war is started, um, how do we conduct the war 
in a just manner. So two things. When is it just to go to war? And then second, once we're in war, what does justice mean within the context of fighting the war? How do we fight that justly? And so I guess we could probably probably start start at the start, right? Uh, which is when is it when is it just to go to war? And I'll I'll try to go through these quickly, and you you feel free to uh, butt in whenever uh, uh, whenever you think it's appropriate. Because I, I don't want this to be a lecture. No, no. Uh, well, <laughs> so. and, and just kind of an etolo- etymological yep. note for for listeners that those words bellow, bellum, just think like bellicose. You know, if somebody's bellicose, mm-hmm. they're sort of you know they're in a fighting spirit. So that's our word for war. Yep. So we've got sort of justice before war. So the principles leading us up to a decision of whether to go to war, and then and then use it um, use in bellum or bellow. I'm not a Latin scholar. That that would be sort of the the rules of conduct during a war. You know, how do yep. you treat prisoners? You know, how do you pick targets, engage targets, et cetera, et cetera. So, take it from there. Yeah, and so when we when we start talking about the first thing, when when it's just to go to war, uh, most just war theorists say that you need to have first a just cause, and that the the basic just cause is self defense against aggression. The problem we have is what is aggression? Um, everyone would ag- agree that a direct inv- invasion, what we call a border crossing, that's aggression. If, if Canada invaded the United States, that's aggression. And, and the United States has the right to repulse that aggression. But then there are things that, are, that would be below that. Things like there, there, there's some people say that that uh, uh, an insult, an insult against nat- national honor, is aggression. There's what uh, back in Woodrow Wilson's presidency, he threatened war against the uh, against the Mexicans because they failed to raise flags and fire cannons when American Navy went by. Uh, that'd be a low standard. I, that would not have been just if he would have done that. But just an example, things like trade embargoes or sanctions or blockades. So there's a reason, for example, Chris, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, John F. Kennedy called what we did to Cuba when you know, we surrounded Cuba with our Navy and, and only let certain ships go through. They called that a quarantine. Because if they would have called it what it was, a blockade, that would be an act of war. Yeah. Uh, so they, they chose a euphemism, uh, the blockade. Then things like uh, anti- what we call anticipation. Uh, we might think of, it'd be one way to justify, for example, United States actions in Iraq in 2003. So the, the question here is, what if you know someone's going to attack you? Yeah, they've got scuds they, and they're pointed at, pointed at us. Uh, and we think but, that they're going to launch them. And so you know, think of the analogy. If, if, if I insult Chris and I say, Chris, I'm going to punch you, and I pull my fist back, would Chris, if Chris is quick on with his fist, would he be justified in punching me before I punch him? I mean, I've, I've announced an intention. I've made active preparation. I'm pulling my, my fist back. At that point, we'd say, what I've done is actually an aggression. Yeah. There's an and, imminency to the blow landing on my, yes. che- on my cheek. Yeah. And yeah. so I think now some would argue whether that, that befits uh, the 2003 invasion of Iraq. I'm just, that's, that's one of the ways in which the Bush administration argue that because yeah. perhaps a, reg- a certain kind of regime having certain kinds of weapons is itself an act of aggression. I mean, people can argue that, but I think probably the classic case of an anticipation would be, the Israeli Arab 1967 Six Days War, um, uh, when when the Israelis attacked before they were attacked, 
because they had intelligence. Uh, uh, air forces were 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 you know, sorties were, were were being sent out. Right, it was it was they knew it was coming, and so they attacked first. Uh, another uh, possible conundrum is what we call intervention. Again, just to use kind of a homey example. Yeah. If if your neighbor is getting beaten up in a fight, yeah. Do you just have to stand there and watch? Right. Right. At at what point do you gain the right? to intervene. Okay, so let's use an actual international example. Let's say there's genocide going on in the Sudan. Right. Do we have the right to intervene as a third party to stop uh, that genocide? Um, And again, this is when it starts to get hairy because what constitutes a genocide? When there is a massive violation of human rights, and this of course goes partially to our the decision to to leave or stay in Afghanistan, we know that in leaving, there's going to be massive abuse of abuses of human rights. We know that's going to happen, and so if we can use the uh, the, the the well-honed uh, phrase from Spider-Man, uh, the first Tobey Maguire Spider-Man, uh, and all the iterations, with great power comes great responsibility because the United States has the ability to stop those human rights abuses. Do we have the right or possibly even the duty to intervene yeah. uh, to stop those human rights abuses? Because you see what the problem here is that we are we would now be violating Afghanistan's sovereignty. Right. So at what yeah. point does a country lose its its sovereign rights? Because what they're doing within its borders, whether it's a genocide, human rights abuses, possibly a civil war, is so awful that third parties gain the right to come in. And what we would normally recognize as a violation of sovereignty. Yeah. And I think Colin Powell called that the pottery barn rule. You remember this? Yeah. Yeah. You break it, you buy it. So, you know, once the decision has been made, okay, we're going to enter this country or, you know, but okay, that's kind of water under the bridge. But now we actually have certain obligations to pay for the damaged goods, uh, so to speak, moving forward. We have obligations unto this particular situation. So intervention, that's the principle. Yeah. So all, all, all that we've talked about so far all comes under, believe it or not, one thing, just cause. Just when cause. is it just to go to war? Right. You have to have a just cause. Yeah. A, a second principle is proper authority. And this is uh, for, if you are looking for a, a contemporary Catholic source, I've read George Weigel um, on, on this subject. War is a public act. It is not a private act. Right. So I, as an individual, can't decide I'm at war against Afghanistan. Right. It's got to be the act of a proper authority, which we normally consider the sovereign authority. The sovereign has the right to decide whether you're at war or not and to start war. So and then this becomes in our day what what becomes kind of the the uh, the, the 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 monkey wrench in this is things like can a U.N. resolution justify war? Yeah when the UN doesn't have any sovereign authority. Um, and we've seen that, especially more so in the first Iraq war in uh, 1991. Now, first President Bush ultimately got congressional authority, but he said that his authority to go to war came from the United Nations. Harry Truman said the same thing in Korea in 19, uh, we'll get my dates right, 51, yeah. 1950, yeah. Um, uh, going to war in Korea was, was based on uh, executing UN resolutions as opposed to American constitutional processes, yeah. uh, which would 
know, it would require some act of Congress, a declaration of war, or at least an authorization, which again, President Bush ultimately got that in 1991, but he, he said that he didn't need it. Yeah. Um, and, and that's again where you, you get a question of, of what is the proper authority. Well, and I suppose this could be a bit murky too, in places where maybe there's some contest, you know, I, the, mm-hmm. the island of Taiwan comes to mind. I think we would all recognize it's self-governing, yep. but, um, uh, you know, the, the very large nation of China would disagree with that assertion, I suppose. When, when you don't recognize people's, a, a nation's right to exist, which is right. precisely the, the, the somewhat ambiguous uh, situation with Taiwan or in the until relatively recently legions of countries that refuse to recognize Israel's right to exist. Right. Uh, and don't rec- didn't did not recognize the Israeli government sovereignty. Uh, for, forget about the occupied areas, even Israel proper. Sure. Um, uh, so so you've got just cause, proper authority. The second or the third thing is right intention. And this is where we can go to Augustine. Augustine says that the aim of war is to restore the tranquility of order. Something is out of order and we need to restore that order. So therefore, war for profit or land is not just. Now, you might get profit or land out of it as a happenstance, right? Yeah. Or maybe as part of a peace agreement to as the punitive damage against, uh, against somebody. Um, but the aim of war cannot be to gain land. So like, for example, in American history, the, the Mexican-American war in the 1840s becomes suspect because frankly it was it was a relatively obvious land grab uh, where uh, the, the the cause of war was basically ginned up by the united states as an excuse to take land successfully uh as it turns out from from the mexicans so that's that's a, a dubious uh intention on on the part of the united states um or we think you know classical hitler invading poland you know would be an example of that you're going you're going to war simply to take somebody's land. Uh, and then we, we start to get into areas, Chris, that are, uh, you're going to see it. I'll, I'll, I'll make a point of this at the end. Some of this is murky. Yeah. Um, because our, our, our fourth principle is a reasonable chance of success. Yeah. Well, what's a reasonable chance of success? Um, you know, that there, there's no algorithm that tells us um, what that is. So because what we don't want is to engage in a war where there's needless death. There's got to be some hope of, of success. Though even here, we, we, you might ask questions, there's such thing as uh, you know, going down fighting. You know, you know you're going to lose, but uh, maybe there's something heroic um, in, in going down fighting. That, that's a possibility. So we could say uh, that the virtue of prudence is actually really important to analyzing yes. these factors. And and that's about maybe I'll just make the point now then Chris is because I'm 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 going through a list here right? right I've gone through points one through four is we need to we can't think of just war theory as a checklist where if I because when, when I'm done here with justice of going to war you're going to notice there's going to be seven seven points if I get five out of seven. Uh, it, it, it's just, you know, I'm going down a checklist. Uh, what these are is our guidelines um, to, um, to, to give a statesman 
some information that he can use uh, to make a prudent decision. There's a, there's a contemporary just war scholar, who I'm now going to forget whether it's Daniel or David Bell, um, uh, who, who said one time, it's sort of like he said when he was, when he was teaching like a Sunday school or a, a, a kind of a, a religious education to a group of high school kids. And he said, the first time to think about morality of sex is not when you're in the backseat of the car, mm. right? You need to have thought about yes. this beforehand. The time to think about just war is before you, you are faced with it. And so a statesman needs to be thinking about these things. And there's going to be a lot of prudence, a lot of judgment involved here. For example, again, our, our, the fifth point the use of arms cannot produce an evil greater than the one being eliminated. That's proportionality. Well, evil greater, right? How do we know? And, and part of that is anticipation. Or how do, we don't necessarily know what's going to happen in war. So it's something that you have to use uh, a judgment. Or even, even more so, uh, there's, uh, the sixth point is um, war, war should be a last resort. Well, what's the... What's the last resort? We all, we, there's always something else you could do. I mean, for one thing, you could surrender. You could, you could capitulate. There's always something you can do instead of war. The question is, at what point is that something just delaying or denying what is inevitable, namely war? Mm. So a, a statesman has to figure out, I mean, think, and think of President Bush, Bush number two, going to war in Iraq, you know, how many resolutions from the United Nations are necessary, right? Uh, how many allies do you need? How, how many warnings to Iraq do you need to give before you say, we've done enough? Uh, there, there's nothing more that we could do that would actually make this, that would actually help us towards the restoration of order, the tranquility of order. Yep. There, there's, only, there's only one more thing to do, and, and, and that, um, that's a matter matter of prudence. I lied. There's not seven points or six points. I forgot. That's it. Uh, so that's, that's it. So uh, the last those point are, is last resort. Is last resort. Yes. So my last one was last resort. So, so our, our, our six points are um, just cause proper authority, right intention, uh, reasonable chance of success, proportionality. And then finally war should be the last resort, whatever, whatever last means. Yeah. And I, you know, just kind of speaking from my Marine background too, this whole use in bello, in bellum, excuse me, sort of in, during the conduct of war, you know, you talk about practicing and sort of rehearsing and sort of um, mm -hmm. training ahead of time. It's something that Marines did all the time. We kind of these no, shoot, no shoot drills, yep. you know, just applying principles of, you know, one of the principles for the conduct of war would be a principle of discrimination discriminating yep. between lawful military targets and, and not lawful targets. Um, so it's something Marines practice all the time. I really appreciate, uh, Professor, how you kind of bring up the necessity for statesmen, for policymakers, for uh, competent political authorities to actually be forming their minds in the exercise of some of these principles, even before they ever get to the backseat of the car, right? Oh, yeah, and, and let's let's not excuse ourselves as well. Uh, right. There's a reason why we're doing this podcast. It's it's not simply for our Joint Chiefs of Staff, who I, I hope are listening, but you know the general population you know needs to be thinking about these things. You know, and obviously the, the 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 church has a robust tradition of thinking about war, 
And so, though I know you and I have talked in the past about conscience, and one of the things that makes a conscience a rightly formed conscience is, is I've used the analogy of it's like a muscle. You have to exercise that muscle. You have to be thinking about things and studying. And so when you, when you make a choice, it, your, your, your conscience is well-formed. And this goes to even as citizens, especially here in a democracy where, where uh, you know, uh, what's our state motto, Chris? Under God, the people rule. Yeah. Um, so the people rule. Uh, so that means that, that we have to form our consciences too. Uh, and so we need to be thinking about war as well, not that the state of South Dakota goes to war, not a proper sovereign, but uh, but the United States does. But you sort of anticipated, Chris, we, we're, we're going to move beyond when is it just to go to war? We're going to talk about what is justice in war? And you mentioned in, in your Marine training, right? This, this is what, when you're actually conducting war, what are some principles that, that govern us? Yeah. And, you, and you mentioned discrimination, <clears throat> right? So we have to discriminate between who's a combatant and who's not a combatant. And here I like to use the, the, a boxing ring analogy, which I'm sure I've stolen from someone and I've long forgotten who it's, for, who, who it's from. But we all know that once you get inside the ring, uh, it's okay for the other guy to punch you. Right. Right. Uh, so in some, you know, um, I think it was Napoleon who said that soldiers were made to die. Now that's a bit, uh, a bit harsh, but I think we, at least we know that there's at least a partial truth to that. But the, but the question is, again, who's a combatant? Uh, so even with people in uniform, um, is a prisoner a combatant? Is someone who's wounded a combatant? Uh, how wounded do they have to be before they're no longer a threat? This is to say nothing of civilians, but what if I'm a civilian who works in a munitions factory? Yep. Am, am, I, am I a target? If I work on the electrical grid, a, am I a target? Yeah. So, uh, in fact, I'd be kind of curious about what they, what your your shoot no shoot situations, your training, uh, Chris, about what how they how they help you with that to make those, because again, you you don't want to find yourself in the heat of battle, never having thought about what is the, what is the right time to pull the trigger. That's right. Yeah, it's um well, and one something we haven't talked about yet is you know going back to Augustine. Certainly, Augustine in developing this theory, he's, you know, 1100 years before the Treaty of Westphalia, but there's certainly this concept of, of political authority. And then, you know, um, 1648, we had to get sort of the rise of the nation state, but now we're in a period in which the, the nation state no longer has a monopoly on violence. So one of the things yep. that the Marines were training is, okay, we're not talking about distinguishing between somebody in a uniform and a non-combatant. We're talking about distinguishing between legitimate combatant targets, but they're not wearing uniforms. And then somebody who is, you know, so, you know, we'd be looking for things like, have have we witnessed a hostile act? Have we witnessed hostile intent? Can we articulate those things? Can we see? Yeah. I'm I'm really glad you brought that up because um, um, one of the things that I want to talk about and forgotten about until you brought that up is precisely that, um, the, the, the rules I'm talking about here did arise in the age when it was assumed that the, um, the, 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 the people involved in war are nation states. So it's one army versus another army. But these days, of course, we would talk about asymmetrical warfare. And of course, we, we see this in Afghanistan. Now, granted, the Taliban now has taken over, so they now have quasi-official status, I suppose. 
but you're oftentimes in in contemporary warfare um you're going against uh groups like say al-qaeda who is a supra national organization they don't represent a nation state right um and so you often have in the whole point of these things uh, of of this kind of asymmetrical warfare is to muddy the waters as to who's a combatant, who is not a combatant, to put your enemies sort of on their heels to make them hesitate. Um, and so the rise of, uh, of terrorism, or even when there was a change in war, when war became not uh, two armies meeting on a battlefield and running at each other, but uh, war becomes urban. Yep. It takes place where people live, or we get the concept of total war, yes. uh, where, where people start to realize Maybe I can't beat the army, but if I scare the heck out of the population, maybe they'll just quit. And so now I start to see civilians as a, a legitimate target because if the civilians experience enormous, you know, they, they get what we call war weariness, they get weary, tired of war, maybe the other side will, will just give up. Now, we would say targeting civilians with one exception, we can maybe talk about the, the concept of double effect here in a second. But on the, uh, it, it, the the rule is the with some exceptions that civilians are not legitimate targets, but not everybody. Um, you know, there's a there's an old German general, General von Moltke. There's two General von Moltkes. I think this is the first one, the father, who was uh, late 19th century. There was also a son who served in the First World War, but said justice of he said justice of war is getting it over quickly. Yes. And so anything that gets war over quickly is just. Now, that's not true, but one can sort of see the logic uh, yeah. behind it, um, that anything sort of uh, short of something truly shocking is just because. And so if going after civilians gets it over with quickly, yeah. that might actually save lives. The ends justify the means. Yeah. yeah. Which is not but true. We'd all, we would always you, you, you can't get to the army through the military uh, through civilians and with some minor exceptions, which maybe we could talk about yeah let's talk about those a little bit because you know this this whole idea of of total war um and just uh i'm going to drop this in there for listeners that want to kind of look this stuff up you're going to go to your catechism and look up paragraph 2309 and kind of right around there is where some of these principles are unpacked a little bit but it cites to this section of the catechism cites to gaudium at spes the sort of constitution for the church in the modern world um adopted by the council fathers at the second vatican council and they they discuss total war with some depth, they, you know, this, they're, they're writing in the sixties, the experience of, of world war two, which was a total war is, is still, I think, fresh in their minds. Um, you know, they would have been middle-aged, I suppose, during world war two. And, and they say, no, no to total war. And this, it's a, it's kind of a new thing too. Like, um, so what is, let's talk about that a little bit, John, what is, what do we need to know about the destruction of innocent life in war and when it would be okay, according to the church's teaching, in some very limited circumstances, to accept um, civilian to to accept civilian deaths as with foreknowledge ahead of time that those deaths will result. What what's the principle here? Yeah. Well, I think. I, I like use of the word accept. Uh, it's not the purpose. It's a secondary effect. So we, we call this the, the concept of double effect. So the, the classic situation is what, what if civilians are involved in the war effort? Like I said previously, you're working in a munitions factory. So the munitions factory is a legitimate 
war target. We know that when we drop, say, a bomb or a missile on the munitions factory, that civilians are going to die. And so we say that blowing up that munitions factory has a double effect. It has two effects. One, it destroys a legitimate military target. The second effect is the killing of civilians. And this is normally considered just as long as the purpose of the attack is not to kill civilians. Um, and so, for example, you know, carpet bombing of Dresden and the Second World War by the Allies is questionable in this sense because it was precisely just simply trying to, and I mean, or the, the Germans bombing London. Let's blame the Germans first because Dresden, in some respects, is, is a response. Germans are clearly targeting uh, London, especially once they develop V1 and V2 missiles. They're targeting civilians as a way to try to defeat uh, allied, specifically British morale. And one of the response to that is, is the carpet bombing of Dresden. Well, that's, that's targeting civilians. Yep. Um, and that's not just. Now, you can attack, attack um, legitimate military targets with, as you put it, the foreknowledge that some civilians, some non-combatants who would normally be considered outside the boxing ring are, are going to die. But that's, that's not the purpose of the attack. Yeah, and, and you know, maybe a good example of this, too, um, just within our own um, nation's history is or the attacks on Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Um, yeah. yeah. And we, sometimes yep. this is hard to process and think about because there was such great relief I think collectively for our nation, like, oh, the war's over. You know, we brought an end to the war, but but in fact, it was deliberately targeting um, civilian populations just for the sake of yep. exerting this this new weapon over over the Japanese populace. So, yeah. So Hiroshima and Nagasaki are questionable in two cents. One one for what you what you just said uh, is that it, it it was targeting civilians. So there there are people who are argue that. Japan was so militarized that there was no such thing as a non-military target mm. uh, in Japan. And I, uh, I don't agree with that, but I think it's a, it's a credible argument. I take it seriously. Uh, but the second thing is, you know, another principle of use and bellow is proportionality, which is confusing because we talk about proportionality in, in going to war. Yes. But also, you're, you hear what we mean by proportionality is using as much force necessary as to achieve Victory, And there are some who say that some weapons, what we call weapons of mass destruction, are never proportional. And that would be that would include nuclear weapons. And there was a time when this is way back in the 1980s, when the American Catholic bishops got uh, I have to reach the recess of my mind, but certainly very close to saying the use of nuclear weapons would never be justified precisely because a nuclear weapon is so indiscriminate yeah. that you can't, it's, it's not, uh, it's not precise. It's, it's inevitable. You're going to be killing um, non-military uh, folks. And same thing with things like biological and chemical weapons is they can be so indiscriminate uh, that they are never in proportion or they, they, they cause so much damage that they're, it's never in proportion to what you're trying to achieve. And people can, can, can argue that because you know, proportionality is uh, is to to some extent is is something that requires prudence. How much is enough to achieve victory, especially in the American context, the so-called Powell doctrine? I mean, you referenced the if you break it, you bought it. Um, 
Colin Powell also said you always attack with overwhelming force. Yeah. Uh, you don't want to leave anything to chance. And there's obviously militarily, there's, uh, there's a, a good deal of, of prudence behind that statement. Yeah, but the principle of proportionality, to just maybe sharpen the point for listeners too. So think of like, um, okay, we've we figured out where Osama bin Laden is. He's clearly, you know, instigating uh, violence against America. He has in the past. We think he's still planning attacks. We're not going to drop a nuke on the whole city in which he's got this hideout. You know, there's something very proportional about, okay, we're sending in the SEAL team and they're going to go do their thing. Yep. But we're not leveling the city. It's a proportional approach. But, well, yeah. Um, well, this is one of the problems that, that uh, if we're up against time, we can, we can, no, we can keep, stop. Go ahead, please. Oh, I was just going to say, I can make this point really quick. It's one of the problems of modern technological warfare, especially thinking of things like drone strikes, is that often targets are picked at a distance. Yeah. And the thing about, like you mentioned Osama bin Laden with sending in SEAL Team 6, is they are right there. There's a human on the ground picking out a target. And sometimes perhaps you, you run into moral issues. I'm not saying it's immoral, but there are moral issues involved when you're using missile strikes targeted by satellites. And it's and even though the technology is extremely sophisticated, but it's not as sophisticated as a human on the ground with eyeballs. That's right. But obviously, we, we like to use this technology because that human on the ground with eyeballs is now himself a target. And this is a way of protecting those people. We can do this at a distance. But that, that creates its own, its own problems. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. I think another thing, too, and I know this is not one of the six factors of, you said, Bella, uh, or even conduct of war. But I, with, with drone strikes and in this technology, we can sort of kill from a distance. I think there's something, too, that especially in a, a republic like America where we're citizens, really it's, it's our moral, we bear moral responsibility for, for these actions of our country. When we don't have skin in the game, so to speak, you know, with our, with our, our brothers and sisters, our neighbors actually sort of being, so there, I think you're right that there's, there's very much this, this discrimination aspect of eyeballs that can actually see things in a better way. But I, I'd also, I don't know. And this is just, my own thought here is that it it contributes to the seriousness of what's happening. Um, it's a very very serious thing. So, okay, um, we are at thirty four minutes right now, Doctor Schaff, which uh, which is just fine um, yep. for yep. folks listening on the radio. Glad you've jumped over and finished this out on the on the on the podcast platform. Anything else we should we should cover before we wrap it up? Well, I hope not. We've talked long enough, haven't we? we I, have. I was just going to say, on the left, oh, Doctor Schaff, we're losing you. Can you can you say again? Uh, uh, smart weapons, smart as we think they are. I'll just say, uh, um, smart weapons aren't as smart as as we think they are, and sometimes we do have that kind of. Uh, the technology can give this illusion of distance, which um, maybe causes us to, to dehumanize uh, uh, the people who are involved in war. Even if there are enemies, they're still humans. Right. And when 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 targets become simply blips on a screen, like it's a video game, 
Yeah, and I, I think this technology has all sorts of benefits. I'm just saying that that a morally serious people has have have to think about um, how we go about waging war. And the like in all all aspects of life, the rise of technology solves certain problems while creating other problems. And we need to think about we. I think we. It's easy to figure out what problems are solved solved by smart military technology we have to think about a little bit about what problems are created by that smart technology and part of that is the the tendency that war in essence becomes too clean too surgical too antiseptic and maybe we don't want to lose all of that because it, it makes it less morally serious than than it actually is yeah dr schaff this was a this was just a great conversation thank you as always for joining us on the show you bet. I appreciate it. And, and listeners, I'm going to close it out with this just because we've kind of been talking about some heavy stuff. Um, and so from this section on the catechism, I just want to read a little bit about what's kind of happening in the heart here. This is paragraph 2303. Uh, the catechism says, deliberate hatred is contrary to charity. Hatred of the neighbor is a sin when one deliberately wishes him evil. Hatred of the neighbor is a grave sin when one deliberately desires him grave harm. So when we're kind of talking about just war and the principles of war and it's just so, so important that we um, we give ourselves to the Lord and we just invite him to cast out any hatred that, that might have crept into our hearts and to restore our own brokenness with his with His divine charity. So um, thanks so much for, for joining. Uh, again, if you're interested in the book club, don't hesitate to reach out. And, um, you know, I think Dr. Schaff used this image of, you know, we got to exercise. It's like kind of a muscle. And it's like, so we go to the gym, get healthy. We're going to work out. So this book club can be a little bit like a muscle or exercising our reason. So um, don't hesitate to reach out. We'd love to, we'd love to have you, have you join us again, beginning September 8th, Wednesday, uh, Wednesday evening, next, uh, next week. Thanks for joining us this week. Until next time, live well.